Amen. You can be seated. Thank you guys for leading us in worship, and thank you guys for participating in worship. It's good to finally get the, uh, the words up there on the screen. As uh, we meet in a room that's a little bit warm, uh, I, I, like we all need to start bringing our individual fans for our remainder of our time here. But we realized that maybe our projector actually needs an additional fan because it overheated. So uh, it feels you. It understands what you're going through. But uh, we're in Psalm 63 this morning. I'm going to be closing out our Summer in the Psalms this morning. Uh, Next week, we're going to begin a series called Immeasurably More. Uh, A few weeks ago, I kind of shared an initial vision about that and want to really cast some vision over the next several weeks of where I believe the Lord is moving us as a church and how I desire for us to really step out in faith, but also remind each other of God's faithfulness in this next season. And so uh, we're going to begin that next week, but we're in Psalm 63. And if you've been with us this summer, for the past several weeks, we've been walking through the Psalms together. And I hope you've seen what a gift the Psalms are to us and and how they they speak so much emotion and so much feeling, how they reveal the deep feelings and emotions of the heart. I have a friend that started a series on the Psalms this summer, and they entitled their sermon series, Soundtracks of the Soul. And I love that because I think these Psalms, they, they speak a language that we don't speak of very often. They speak of, of real feelings and emotions we don't speak of very often, they, that, that we don't reveal. They're the longings, they're the pursuits, they're the emotions of the soul. And Psalm 63 is just like that. I love that, that Psalm 63 is really slated for us this morning. And the reason I say that is, uh, if you're anything like me, I feel like we're, we're kind of stepping into uh, fall rhythms. If you have kiddos, kiddos are about to go back to school. I feel like we're, we're coming to the end of our summer vacations, uh, and, and things are about to kind of really get back into the rhythm of life. And, and this passage really talks about the rhythms of life and some rhythms that we as believers are going to face and experience. And I love the the pursuit that's in this passage because I really want this to be the driving force as we kind of move forward in this next season. But I want to begin with a question this morning, and and I want you to ask each, each of you, ask yourself, have you ever been desperate? And you get to fill in the blank for whatever that is, but a moment of desperation. If I look up the definition of what does it mean to be desperate, it's suffering under extreme need. There's an extreme need and we feel the pressure. We're desperate for something. This past week, we were driving back from Jackson Hole. We were spending a few days up there camping or glamping, if you know anything about our family. Uh, Tents are not in our vocabulary. We don't sleep on the ground. I sleep in a nice, comfy mattress in in a nice, warm RV. That's how we love to camp. But we decided when we rolled out of Jackson Hole this, this past week that we were going to uh, take a new route home. And so didn't really have like gas stops scheduled and just really kind of rolled out of Jackson and took off on the road and started headed 
south. And as we came, we, we did pass some towns, and I, I saw the gas prices in those towns, and, and, and I looked down upon my gas gauge, and I'm like, I'm good. I still got a couple hundred miles. Uh, we're not going to pay for 75 a gallon, so let's keep going. And we kept going, and we kept going, and kept going, and eventually we lost cell service, and eventually I started seeing the gas gauge get lower and lower, and eventually I became desperate. I began going, when is the next town? My gas gauge, you know how it tells you, like, hey, you have 50 miles left to empty. Maybe some of you love to press your luck, and you see that often. Uh, but pulling a 36-foot trailer, I was growing a little bit concerned that maybe just the estimation on my truck was not going to be exactly right, and maybe I'm actually growing very close to running out of gas in the middle of nowhere and really having no idea where I was, and I was waiting. I was looking upon the horizon for a city, for a town that I could pull in, and I was ready to experience the relief when I pull up to the gas station, and here's the thing. I pulled into Woodruff, Utah. Now, no one has ever looked with such favor upon Woodruff, Utah as we did this past week. Woodruff, Utah. It's the kind of city that, that has like one stoplight as you drive through. I remember commenting as we were driving out of town, there was a restaurant on the left-hand side of the road. It was called the Crawford Trough. Now, I looked up Yelp reviews, and they're actually really good, but the name is not that appealing. Like that actual, like a trough that livestock come and eat at, this is where we as human beings are going to come and sit down and have a nice family meal. This is the kind of town of Woodruff, right? But Woodruff was our saving grace. And gas was still $4.75 a gallon, but you better believe we got gas. We filled up, and there was a moment of relief that came over us. We're saved. There was a moment where we kind of get to breathe, and the tension from our shoulders is like, all right, we're not going to be stuck on the side of the road. This sense of desperation that I described, this sense of longing, this sense of suffering under extreme need, this sense of searching the horizon is how David describes searching for God in Psalm 63. And I think all of us, whether it is some hike up in the mountains and we're desperate for water and we brought our hydro flask and we're totally out, or maybe you're, you got the camel back strapped and you take, you know, you pull the straw to your mouth and there's nothing there and you still got four miles back to the car. Or you're driving and you run out of gas. There's a moment of desperate, you need something. This is the type of, of, of the desperate nature of David in going, I need and desire and want to experience God. I need to sense his presence. This is how David describes this. In fact, in my Bible, there's a little subscript above the passage there in Psalm 63 that kind of tells the nature and background of the passage. And it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. 
And I think many of us can relate to that, that spiritually, we feel like we're in the wilderness. Emotionally, we feel like we're in the wilderness. Physically, we've been in the wilderness, and it causes this sense of desperation. In those moments, we need something. We need someone. We need help. We're suffering under extreme need. And what I want you to see in this passage is David is searching for God, seeking after God, pursuing God. The overarching message of this psalm, and really the encouragement in this psalm, is found in verse 3 that says, Your steadfast love is better than life. This is the anchor passage. This is what anchors him in that moment of desperation, that God's steadfast love is better than life. And that's the big idea I want us to get at this morning. If you leave with anything, I hope you leave this morning with the phrase in mind that God's love is better than life. God's love is better than life. Do you believe that this morning? Do you really believe that God's love is better than living? I think as we see the news, we see what's happening in Afghanistan, we see what's happening across our world, there are people who are, who are facing this decision where they're actually having to choose, is God's love really better than life? Because their life is at stake. But we, in our comfortability, we're not faced with that decision on a daily basis. Do we live with the reality that God's love is better than life? One of the first books I read when I became a Christian, I've shared this with you before, was The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozer. And I'm going to quote a few passages or a few um, quotes from, from that book this morning. The first one is this, The world is perishing for lack of knowledge of God, and the church is famishing for want of His presence. I'll read it again. The world is perishing for lack of knowledge of God. The world doesn't know God. But the church, us as believers in Jesus, we're famishing, we're hungry, we're starving because we lack a desire and pursuit of God. And so I want to remind you this morning that God's love is better than life. Are we desperate for that? Are we longing for that? Do we have that sense of desperation that we are needful or needing of God? Are we desperate? And so what David describes here are the rhythms and patterns that we live our life by. Every day, these, these are the rhythms that every morning we wake up, there's a sense of acknowledging the presence of God and seeking and pursuing the presence of God. And so I broke this passage down into three things. The search for God the sight of God, and the saving of God. The search for God, the sight of God, and the saving of God. The first is the search for God. Psalm 63, 1, read it with me. You can read along here on the screen or open your Bible. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He describes the type of desperation that he has. 
And he compares that the way in which he seeks God is the way in which a, a, a weary traveler in a, in a desert land is, is seeking water. My question to us this morning is, when you read Psalm 63.1, does that describe your pursuit of God? Would you say that you could read Psalm 63.1 and honestly, that, that's your prayer, that's your request. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And if I'm honest with you, I was convicted in the sense that sometimes I don't have that type of desperation. I don't have that sense of, of longing and pursuit that, that I'm seeking after God. And so maybe a question to ask us this morning is, have we grown complacent? We're just satisfied with where we are. A.W. Tozer in The Pursuit of God says, complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. What is complacency? Complacency basically means that we're pleased, we're satisfied, and it's without awareness that there's some potential danger. So it's like we're, we're kind of just numb. We don't sense the reality that we're actually starving. We don't sense the danger that, that we are actually very much in need of God. And because of that, we just live life with an existence of going, I think I'm good. Have you grown complacent? Have you become content? And I think many of us know that like when we think about being content, that's a, a good virtue, right? That's a good value to have. But the question is, is what are we growing content with? In many ways, I think we have a false sense of contentment that we fill our lives with things and we pursue things that we believe will satisfy us, but end up always leaving us dry and thirsty and hungry and unsatisfied, right? And dissatisfied. So, so we spend our life searching. We, we, we're aware of our need, but we actually feel satisfied by devouring other things. This is a false sense of contentment. In each of us, every single human being on planet Earth has a God-shaped hole in their life that only God can fill. If you've ever seen, I remember growing up, I remember our kids having it, the little toy that has different shapes and you have all the different blocks and, and each of these blocks fit in, in each and like no matter how much you try to take one of those shapes and fit it into another one of those holes, it doesn't fit. And I want you to imagine whatever that shape looks like, we have a God-shaped hole, and we can take all the stuff in the world and try to fill it. We have a hunger inside each of our lives that we're trying to fill and trying to satisfy, and we're trying to find contentment, but our contentment will never be found in anything outside of God. So my question is, is when you read Psalm 63, 1, where it says, Oh God, you are my God, what are you filling in the blank? What is it that you're pursuing? What is it that you're seeking? Oh job, 
You are my job. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Oh, spouse, you are my spouse. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My, my flesh faints for you. Oh, finances, you are my finances. Earnestly I seek you. Oh, health, where is my health? Oh, I seeking health. And none of these things are, are bad pursuits. But when they're held in, in, up, in, in comparison to, to God, they will fail to actually satisfy. Are you actually searching and seeking for the thing that can actually satisfy your soul? What is it that you're seeking and pursuing? What is it that you're returning to over and over? What is it that you're really thirsting after? What is it that your flesh is seeking to devour? What are you desperate for? The word seek, as I've described it to you before, literally means to tread a path. If you go up in the mountains and there's all these trails, the, the grass on those trails, like it, it stays padded down or it's non-existent because so many people frequent that same path. And there's a sense in which this passage, David is saying, I continually have a path back and forth to God, that I tread a path, that that is the path that I walk over and over and over because that is the one thing that truly satisfies. That's what it means to seek. Is that a descriptor of your pursuit of God? Or maybe you're here this morning and that hasn't been your pursuit because you've actually never consumed. You've never tasted of the goodness of God. You don't know God's love to be better than life. You don't see that this, this well of life-giving water to be satisfying. You don't know that you're, what your soul really longs for is God's love. You're just simply unaware. And our prayer this morning is that your body, your soul, and your flesh, as, de as he describes here in verse 1, it's basically David's whole being is intensely focused on experiencing the presence of God. My soul and flesh long for the presence of God. And that's our heart and prayer. If you're here this morning and you've never consumed, you don't know God's love to be better than life. I would tell you it's worth searching for. The second rhythm that he goes on to describe is he has the sight of God. And so many of us, we, we all have this pursuit, we all have this search, and we're longing for something, but he walks into the sanctuary, and in the sanctuary, he, he, he's given this sight, he's given this vision of who God is. Verse two through four, it says, so I looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. And here's the key verse. Because your steadfast love is better than life, what's the response? My lips will praise you, so I'll bless you as long as I live, and in your name, I'll lift up my hands. This is this, this sense of, he is coming to behold the power and glory of God. What is it that you behold? What is it that you look to that, that, that you're in awe and wonder of? 
Have we lost that sense of awe and wonder? Have we grown numb to the things of God? Do we no longer look at God and stand in wonder of His power? I'm hopeful this morning, and I'm prayerful this morning. We need a new vision. When, When we are in that pursuit and seeking of God, we're begging God for this type of vision. We're begging God to have a vision of His power, that God can do whatever He wants to do. He's capable. He's able. As we talk about our Ephesians 3.20, that He's able to do immeasurably more. God is able. God is capable. We need a sight of that power. We need a sight of His beauty, that there is nothing that compares with Him. We need that type of vision. I'm afraid that we become awed with too many things. We're like a kid in a candy store, right? There's just so much stuff. There's so many things that we are in awe of, that we are in wonder of, that robs our affections and our vision of God. A.W. Tozer says this, There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always possess. It covets things with deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print but their constant and universal use is significant. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things, and we dare not pull up one root lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by this monstrous substitution. We need this type of vision. We need a type of vision that wakes up, that our eyes become full of who God truly is. In the midst of being extremely thirsty, God gives him a drink. In the midst of being hungry, God gives him a taste. And it is that vision that sustained him. That vision of seeing how big God is, is what sustains him. The circumstances didn't change. The vision of God changed. And here's what I want you to hear. God may deliver. He's capable of delivering. But if he doesn't, his love is enough. His love is enough. Because his steadfast love is better than life. God's love is better than life. You know what that vision affects for David? It affects his head, heart, and hands. It affects his thoughts. It changes his thoughts. It changes his viewpoint. 
It changes his heart because it says his lips are going to speak and declare praise. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then it says his hands were going to be hands of blessing. That it affects his whole being. Our prayer, our hope is that you would have a vision of God, a sight of God that changes what you think, it changes your heart, and it changes your behavior, but it may not change your circumstances. That's what God is up to. God wants to give you a vision and a taste of who he is that no matter what your circumstances, you're able to say, God's love is better than life. The last thing, well, let me ask you this. Today, right where you are, think about your head. What about who God is needs to change in your thought life? What kind of vision do you need to see that really changes your head, your belief? What are the things that you need to see changed in your heart, your desires, your longings? What is it that needs to change in, in how you, you go about and live about your life, your, your hands? What is it that, that and, and that's what God is, is up to. That's what God is seeking to do, to give you a vision that would change your head, heart, and hands. And then lastly, we see the saving of God. Verse 5 through 8. And I want you to see that the saving of God, like I've already mentioned, doesn't mean that he removes us from the situation or he removes us from pain, but God meets us in the moment and pours out his love in us because God's love is better than life. And it's knowing that that frees us. And this is what saves us in, in 63, 5 through 8. It says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you your right hand upholds me. And what you hear in this is there's a confidence in David. There's a, there's a sense where he says, my soul will be satisfied. Ha, have you ever had your soul satisfied by God? Has there been a moment of, of a sense of desperation and a longing for circumstances to change or, or pain to go away, but in the midst of that, God meets you and pours out his love into your heart. And in that moment, your soul is satisfied. The circumstance isn't gone, but you're satisfied. And I, I can look back, I mean, for me, legitimately, when my parents passed away in the last... 15 to 16 months, I look at that and go, that was a terrible, hard, painful circumstance. But in the midst of that, my soul was satisfied. We sang a song at my mom's memorial service. And it says, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? 
I can remember when you showed your face to me. As a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for you. And when I behold your glory, you, show, you so faithfully renew. Like a bed of rest for my fainting flesh, I'm satisfied in you. There was a moment of deep soul satisfaction because in the midst of that pain, in the midst of those circumstances, God poured out his love. And God's love is better than life. St. Augustine said, our heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in him. And we hear David describe this, talking about on his bed, when I remember you upon my bed, when I meditate you on the watches of night. How many of you have had a sleepless night? You're just turning over. A restless soul, David is describing. And it's in the midst of that restless stir and restless soul of the night that God gives him rest, that God gives him this vision. What is God calling us to in this passage? He's wanting us to put our faith in the God who saves. Not the God who takes away circumstances or changes circumstances. Not the God who takes away pain, but the God who meets us in the midst of pain. The God who pours out his love for us. A.W. Tozer says, faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. I'm going to say it again. Faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. And what, what Psalm 63 is, is it's giving us a picture that God is trustworthy, that God is worthy to be praised, God is, is worthy to behold that God is worthy to pursue, that God is worthy to seek because God's love is better than life. Final question. Does God's love for you make any difference in your life? Do you know God's love? Does it change Monday morning? Does God's love for you change the way you wake up tomorrow morning? Does God's love for you change the way you think about relationships, about your family, about your finances? Does God's love for you change that? And maybe just to, to give you a really like tangible example of like how, how does God's love really change? if God loves me and God has poured out his love for me through Jesus and has revealed that love for me, then I'm accepted. Then I'm not in, in need and in desperation to look for acceptance in, in other people. If God loves me and has poured out his heart for me, then I'm not alone. 
I'm not navigating this, this life this week in isolation. If God loves me and I'm his child, then I don't have to be self-sufficient and figure it out on my own. If God loves me and I fully behold his power and glory, then my soul is completely satisfied and I'm not looking for other things to fill that. Does God's love change the way you live? Does it make any difference in your life? Is there some way here and now that the love of God, his covenant towards you, his passionate heart towards you, make any difference? Does it make such a difference that you would be willing to lose your life to forfeit his love? Is your connection with God so important that you would sacrifice all future hopes and dreams to keep connected with God? That's what David's describing. Because God's love is better than life. And if God's love is better than life, then God's love is better than anything. In John chapter 17, verse 25 through 26, Jesus prayed this, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you, know that you have sent me. And I've made known to them your name. And I'll continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. What allowed Jesus to go to the cross? It was the love of the Father. Jesus truly modeled and characterized his life by the phrase, God's love is better than life. The love of the Father is better than life. The love of the Father is what sustained him. And although he said, God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But if it's your will, I trust you because God's love is better than life. And I'm willing to go to the cross so that your love will be poured out upon these people. And he prays that the love that I know, God's love and covenant relationship with Jesus, I want every single person to know that type of love, that the love you have loved me with may be in them. That's our prayer. That's our hope. That's what David invites us into this morning, is that type of love. So I want us to close our eyes. We're going to pray. Worship team is going to come back up. I'm going to lead us in communion. But I really want communion today to be an illustration and a picture. As you come to this table this morning, when we take of the wafer and the juice, 
that we would be reminded of God's love for us this morning. My hope this morning is that you wouldn't walk out of this room with more things to do. My hope this morning is that you would be captivated by God's love because that will actually change your life. So when we come and we receive of this goodness, of this meal, of this gift, we come to this table and it resembles the the bread, the broken body of Jesus. Jesus was wounded. Jesus was crushed. His body was beaten beyond recognition. He was willing to endure it because of God's love. His blood was poured out. Nails were driven into his hands and to his feet. He was nailed to a cross. He was mocked in the public square. Why? Because God's love had been poured into him and he desired for that love to be poured out to you. So when we come to this table this morning, it is a reminder. If you want to know how much God loves you, all we have to do is look at the cross. Father, I pray this morning that you would give us the type of vision, the type of taste, the type of satisfaction in knowing that God's love is better than life. Lord, give us this picture, this window into seeing that you are the only thing that satisfies. Help us to truly believe that, to know that this morning. Change our thoughts, change our hearts, change our behavior, change our hands. Lord, let us live with tangible evidence. Let us live knowing that you have poured out your love for us and you've revealed that through your son Jesus on the cross. And as we come to this table this morning, let this be a a picture and a reminder of your deep covenant love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.